0: Visit plannedparenthood.org slash future to learn more and support their cause.
1: I only had like one friend in the class and she knew how to ski. So she was not like, you know, patient enough to like, let me do the bunny slopes. And on the, my one and only time on the next up from the bunny slopes, not only did I not stop at the end of the slope, but I uh, hit the ski lodge
2: oh wow that's not good
1: I, in fairness when i say i hit the ski lodge only my skis hit the ski lodge because oh, okay. at that point i was on my back with my knees like under me
2: yeah <laughs> see if i don't ski yeah. anymore you can die <laughs>
3: Welcome to another episode of the Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with Herman López, ProPublica's Dara Lind. uh, And we're going to talk today about vaccines, uh, which we we, we talked about a little bit a few weeks ago. uh, But we know a bit more now. The situation has changed a bit more. um, The rollout seems to be going a little bit faster than it was Previously, but still well behind the kind of optimistic operation warp speed uh forecasts that we had had last fall. And Herman, I mean, you've been you've been writing about this, Hero. But like what what's going on? Like why why is this so much slower than they said it was gonna be?
2: So I I would say it's going a little better than it was. We're now at around 1.3 million vaccinations a day, which is Decent pace, not, not what a lot of people would like, but a, a decent pace. Um, but I think so So far what we've seen for most of the past few weeks are problems in like the last mile of the distribution chain, essentially, which is where vaccines have to go from storage to arms. And we've seen all sorts of problems in that regard from there not being enough staff to actually vaccinate people from like storage breaking down from like terrible just like logis- basic logistics planning, like overscheduling long lines it seems like there's just a lot of problems going on in this last part of the chain. And it can actually be easy to think, like, okay, so there's there's all these problems going on. Is is there really one big factor? I when I've asked experts this, they've said it's kind of like, like, look, there aren't 50 bad state governments in the US. Like, that's just not how the it works. It's just the lack of federal support has made it so easy for states to mess this up. And since the U.S. is a big country, like a big diverse country, there are going to be lots of different problems happening at once when no one has enough resources for this. And not just resources, but like guidance, support. Like it, it really seems like the, the Trump administration in many ways didn't even do the basics on this. And that's really what we're, we're seeing the results of.
3: But can I interrogate that a little sure. bit? Like, so the Trump administration didn't, deliver a lot of resources and guidance and support. But at the same time, if you're the governor of, I don't know, Rhode Island, you know, like you can see coming, right? Like it's it's August, it's September, it's October. There's a news story that Pfizer has these good results. We're waiting for the FDA. Like you, you are aware that you haven't been given these federal resources. And it seems like there's an opportunity to do Something like today, the uh, garbage is not being picked up on my block, even though it's my garbage day, because it's snowing and they need the Department of Public Works to plow the streets. And like, fair enough, right? Like there's no federal resources available to plow the streets like the city's got to figure it out. Uh, Like, why is this an insurmountable problem?
2: Well, I I wanted to say, like, first of all, some of it is on states. You can't just write them off. But this is. I mean, like for months, states have been trying to plan for this. But the same thing I heard like time and time again is like, look, this is the biggest vaccination campaign in U.S. history. Like it's it's just a massive rollout. Like we're trying to vaccinate 300 million people in the span of months. So it was always going to be pretty difficult to do. And if you do anything to make that even harder, it's just going to be a really difficult challenge. I'm, I'm not trying to exc- excuse states by any means. I think, I mean, in, in terms of COVID in general, I think there have been plenty of mistakes made. But I think to me, it, it's just, I think of this as like, if this is a world where the Trump administration had not actively lobbied against more support for states, which they did. We, we've seen news reports that they actively lobbied against more money for states. If this is a world where like the Trump administration was consistently providing guidance, then I would, then I think we would have been in a much better place by now. The other thing I think to consider is states were already overwhelmed because they were dealing with the biggest surge of COVID period over the winter. And so the same public health agencies that were now in charge of like doing vaccines were also dealing with like making sure their hospitals didn't get jammed up. And uh, like, how do you get enough coronavirus testing out there? And can you still do contact tracing at all? So I think... I think those things combined, again, I wouldn't say that it, it forgives states, but it, it makes it seem more reasonable. And and it really puts it on the federal government.
1: Yeah, I mean, honestly, Herman, when you talk about this as like the largest vaccination campaign in U.S. history, I've found over the last few days when I'm thinking about this that I have to reset my expectations a little bit. Like the rollout of new, you know, federal-state partnership supported, needing to be like individually tailored stuff. like even the healthcare.gov rollout had a substantial number of problems in its first weeks. And like, yes, that was like a notable, you know, government failure on some levels. But it's just true that new complicated things don't go super smoothly initially at jump. And the difference is that like, vaccines are going to expire if not a like a are going to spoil if not stored at a particular temperature, which in the case of the first round of vaccines to go live was is super low, like, super technical freezers required low and also not necessarily something that would be known to a great degree of confidence in advance during the testing process as they're still working the technical specs out and b that they will expire if not used within a certain amount of time and so the you don't get a period for beta testing on vaccines and for political reasons you know you're not going to say we are going to in the first you know days only take 20% of the capacity of vaccines that we think we ultimately can get so that we can make sure that all sites have the proper storage, that they have proper procedures in place, that they have the personnel, etc. Like that's not you could all of the political issues that are coming up now in the distributional questions of who is getting vaccines, who is getting prioritized, you know, who has the liberty to travel easily to go to sites where vaccines are would have been so much worse if you had a situation where the government was explicitly saying we're not taking all the vaccines we can get our hands on at the very first jump. So I do kind of wonder, you know, how much of this in particular would have been planned for in advance? And to what extent is this kind of just to to what extent was it always going to be this rough?
2: I mean, I I would say that it was always going to be pretty rough to begin with this is a big country doing trying to do a very big thing and kind of to this point there are very few countries executing this right which kind of lends to the the point that this is difficult the like one country that has been doing really well is israel which not coincidentally is small and pretty dense but i would say the the other side of this is States were planning for this and that's good, but you also have to plan like four things going wrong. And that's like where you start like really having to dig into details, having to like run simulations of what you're going to do, having to do like all this extra, extra work. Like you need to start planning like, okay, if this fridge breaks down, what are we going to do to make sure those doses are used? And Maybe that requires a backup fridge. Maybe that requires suddenly surging staff. Both those things require more money, right? Like those, those are things that like are going to be really difficult to pull off if you have just have limited resources. So I think that's kind of the issue here is when you're planning for such a big supply chain, I've actually talked to a bunch of supply chain experts about this because it's just like I want to know how you do this. Some of the stuff sounds basic, but the essence of it is you want to make sure that when something goes wrong, you're at least prepared to address that problem to some degree. Like, you might not know what the problem is, but you'll have the, like, logistics and setup in place to do it. A lot of places just didn't do that. Maybe because they didn't have the resources, maybe just poor planning or leadership, but that that's what's going wrong.
3: What do we make of this? Uh, so, obviously, like, one of the big priorities um, everywhere as far as I know is to try to go to nursing homes uh, where such a high share of of the deaths have been happening. And one thing I've read, right, is that West Virginia is the only state that didn't sign up for some kind of um, like CVS run effort to go do this. And then they seem to be popping up with the fastest throughput. Um, I'm not. I, I don't even know what branch of CVS it is that you would contract with to do this. But like, I've been to CVS. It's kind of slow. Like, is is that where Like, did outsourcing this to companies that probably don't like have a clear incentive to actually do it that efficiently cause a problem here?
2: I, I mean, that certainly seems to be part of it. The Trump administration recommended partnering with the major pharmacy chains, and West Virginia basically said. Ah, uh, nah. We'll We'll do with like local like local pharmacies. And I think what's interesting is it turns out these local pharmacies have a lot of partnerships already with local nursing homes, which mm-hmm. it's not exactly shocking, but like that seems to be their advantage is like because they already have those pre-established partnerships, they can go ahead and and actually distribute the v- vaccines. But I think what this really speaks to is kind of like this broader thing of, of like adaptability and flexibility. West Virginia was not like, we are only going to stick to these two pharmacies. We're going to use whichever pharmacies can get the vaccine out fastest. And this is something that I think has really tripped up the US in general is when you look at whether it's the guidelines, the criteria we're using to actually, on who can actually qualify for a vaccine, whether you're thinking about like where a vaccine is being distributed, we have a lot of like inflexibility in terms of like deciding who can actually get a vaccine, where they can do it and, and whatnot. And I think, I mean, this is a process you want to make as easy and as straightforward as possible. And in many cases, we're just not doing that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it, it's. It, I think it can be hard because we're so used to mature policymaking processes when we think think about kind of major government efforts that like it seems sensible to say, well, of course, we're going to have the maximum pool of resources available to us and therefore our problems are problems of triage right like of course we're going to be able to get as many vaccines into arms as we want to so the question is whose arms do we prioritize to put vaccines into and like when you're creating a new thing that's not necessarily the case it's like very this is maybe the most attenuated immigration analogy i've ever done on this show so i'm sorry but like one of the lessons of the last 20 years in immigration enforcement is once you have the technical capacity that in theory, you could be, you know, in theory, you know, of more unauthorized immigrants than you have the physical capacity to deport, that's where it starts to become a question of, you know, do you ramp up that physical capacity? Or do you start deciding that even though someone is known to you, you're not going to go after them. And that's, that wouldn't have been possible 20 years ago. And similarly, it's not You can't make the kind of mature triage decisions if you're still trying to get kind of the technical universe of being able to connect with people as you want to.
3: I've also found, you know, looking uh, locally at at D.C. and what they're doing, that the um, the concept of prioritization, I think, like encompasses several different Universes, right? So there's there's like one universe in which uh, DC and I think most states are prioritizing senior citizens over non seniors. And what that means is that there are some vaccines available on a kind of first come first serve basis, Um, but there are more people coming than can be served. So they're saying if you're under 65, you can't get it. So over 65 is a priority. Another thing that's happening is. They are my, my son is in school for the first time in 10 months today because uh, they were trying to get schools back up and running. So they are prioritizing vaccinations of teachers. But that's different in, in D.C., at least. It's not that the teachers are now like in the priority group and they can go sign up. It's there is a special facility at Dunbar High School set up for people who work in the DCPS system and they can go there and get vaccinated. Right. And then something that you're seeing within those two windows is that there's divergent problems. Right. Like, surely there are some senior citizens who are reluctant or hesitant to get the vaccine. But in the aggregate, every time they open up appointments, like it sells like hotcakes and, and you know, they are all booked in 20 minutes. Um, but with the teachers, because they've created I guess I would call it like deep prioritization of teachers like they have a vaccine for every school staffer like they're waiting for them. They have a dedicated facility. Um, lots of the teachers I'm hearing, and school support staff in general, not just teachers, um, aren't going. Right. And so one issue they're having with throughput is they want to maintain the policy that the vaccines are available for all the school staff. But while many school staffers are clamoring to get the vaccine, many others aren't. And then there's like a different group of people who are over 65 clamoring for the vaccine. They can't get it. And I think the language of prioritization is I mean, the logistics are complicated, but also the language is confusing people because people are like, oh, I'm in a priority group, but I can't get a vaccine. But that's because you're not in like the really good priority group. Right. Like there is a group of people for whom if you want a vaccine, you can go get it. And they're having a problem actually like delivering to everybody there. Um, But then there's a different group where it's like, yeah, you're on the list, but but it's really hard to do. And uh, I mean, I don't know. Right. There's reasons to sort of target subgroups like this. Um, And healthcare workers is the big one. Every place Uh, we have a similar thing. But it clearly slows down your throughput, right? Like you create a bottleneck where you say, "Okay, we want to get everybody who works in this hospital a shot. And not everybody who works in the hospital wants a shot. But lots of people who don't work in the hospital do. And you're not giving them away as easily as you could because you're trying to meet um, like, I don't know, like they don't want a big outbreak among teachers in the school system, which seems reasonable to me. But like, also, I wish the school staff would get vaccinated.
2: I mean, it seems like uh, like I think you're going to see more of this as time goes forward, just in terms of like the the a growing problem over time is going to be vaccine hesitancy. And I think how you balance like moving along the priority list you set for yourself and that is going to be just something that I don't know, local and state officials just have to figure out. But I'm I would be curious there how much you're like aggressively following through with teachers and like actually pushing them to get vaccinated because what we've seen in like Asian and African countries where they do like big vaccine efforts, we're talking about like stuff for like polio and whatnot. it's not enough to just like set up a vaccine site and ask people to come in. You have to like very aggressively, bother people essentially like call them text them and whatever i'm curious if they're actually doing that with teachers because that would probably help a bit wouldn't solve the whole problem but i'm just wondering yeah, I mean,
3: so you know like my school's uh pto like put a thing together we got like a doctor you know to come and come and talk to people i mean i just know that the uh the public health officials are feeling like pulled in multiple different directions, because you have people saying, um, you know, so you have teachers union being like, no, 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 like we can't open the schools like you haven't vaccinated everybody. You have the DCPS officials who are like, we got to get these vaccines done. Like we're opening the schools. Um, We need to win our arbitration case. Right. With the union to to win that case, they need to say that the vaccine is 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 going well. But then you have all these other people. Right. The seniors, I mean, I will stereotype them as like white college educated seniors who are like mashing refresh on their web browser all day. And they're like, why can't I get the vaccine? Right. And like the city and the media, like everybody wants them to do all of these things simultaneously. Right. Like they want them to fix the hesitancy issue in the school system to solve you know, like a big problem for parents and students. They also want them to, like, deliver vaccines to the people who do want the vaccines. Uh, but then they don't want The Washington Post to keep publishing these infographics that show that they're only vaccinating people in the rich white neighborhoods. Um, and they're, like, trying different things, right? They, like, set up extra appointments in the lower income zip codes and things like that. But it that doesn't solve the hesitancy issue, which requires a lot of spade work, But I think it's hard to invest in that spade work when there are so many people clamoring for a vaccine that they can't get, right? Like when you do a polio eradication program, like the premise is that like you've already hit like the low hanging targets. And so now it's like, all right, like we got to get out there into the rural villages. The logistics are hard. We need to do the community work. But like, that's the point of the program. But here there's just like lots of like, I would love a vaccine, you know, and it's it's a challenge to like do both of these things simultaneously.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that the the other part of this that the, the equity part that you kind of glanced at, Matt, is super important because it's another way in which the conversation about prioritization is being intended in a different way from the way it's getting heard. When you say we are going to make vaccines available to these categories of people, but we're also making them available at these places, and those two may not perfectly map onto each other, i.e. there might be a lot of educated upper middle class white people who are in neighborhoods that aren't getting as many vaccines as they have people willing to take them. Like, where you're distributing the vaccines isn't a strict limitation on who can get them especially when a lot of when people have been you know not like walking around their neighborhoods a ton they have to get online to get a vaccine appointment anyway the lift involved in oh i have to go to a different part of town to get this thing that is the most important thing i can do to stop myself from getting the coronavirus and that is going to change my life like that's not a big obstacle and so really this is in a, a lot of cases, a digital divide problem, right? Where you have, for one thing, a cohort of people who are less likely to feel comfortable using the internet on their own. That's true, you know, even of higher income people, higher education people who are of a certain age, they're often, you know, needing like children or neighbors or something to help them get set up. But especially in places, in neighborhoods where you don't have as many who are used to using the internet for work because they're working blue collar jobs. You don't have people who are sitting in front of computers all day. It's not that surprising that those people aren't as able to get the slots that are available in their neighborhood. And so you can see a world where a lot of the vaccine rollout took the form of, hey, let's make sure that we have an iPad app that we have available at like CVSs in lower income neighborhoods so that people can easily sign up for vaccine appointments there. And they know that that is a place where they can straightforwardly do that. And like, that's not what happened. Instead, you have a situation where a lot of people feel they have to be their own Internet detective. And by definition, the folks who can marshal those resources are going to be the ones getting the slots.
3: But can I I I want to pivot this a little bit, because um, one thing that has happened over the past month is that this these throughput problems, I think, have been getting less severe, right? Like, I mean, people continue to to struggle with it. But um, but there's a lot more vaccinations per day happening than was five or six weeks ago. So we're starting to run up against the question of like, how much vaccines can you make? Um, and we're beginning to hear sort of glimmers of work on this, right? So one idea is they're going to use the Defense Production Act to get there's a there's like two different kinds of vials that Moderna uses for their vaccines, and one of them has like a less wasteful syringe. And so you can get six shots out of it versus only five. Um, So so that's one one thing they're they're going with. Um, It looks like there's going to be an application to the FDA for Moderna to like stuff their vials with more. More, more vaccine. I, I, I don't totally understand how this works. Uh, but like apparently their current regulatory approval says they can put five or six doses worth in the vial, but they believe they can fit 10. Uh, so we'll like see how regulators go with that. Uh, but these kind of issues seem to me like they're increasingly going to become the key topic. I mean, we we want to vaccinate everybody here. Eventually, we want to vaccinate people in developing countries like the, the world needs a lot of vaccines. But it seems a little oddly like mysterious to me. What's what's going on with this? Like, you would think that the CEO would say, like, I would love to make three million doses a day. But to do that, you got to give me, you know, $6 billion and an elephant and like a painting of a giraffe. And, you know, and then like Congress would go do it, right? I mean, this seems like the the uncontroversial aspect of like, the COVID relief bill is that like, Biden wants some money for vaccinations, and congressional Republicans seem open to that idea. But it's like, what, what do we need?
2: I mean, I think there there has been, like, notably less transparency around this, especially when you compare to, like, COVID testing last year. Obviously, COVID testing was screwed up in a lot of ways in the U.S., particularly early on. But we, like, knew what was going wrong in a lot of these cases. Like, it was swabs, it was regents, it was, like, machines. With with vaccines, it's been, I think, much more difficult to pin down. I think part of it might be that we have been stuck with, like, these other problems that aren't necessarily supply related to the vaccine for the past few weeks so a lot of like the reporting and attention has gone to other stuff but i do wonder like if if drunk companies are just scared to like maybe not scared isn't the right word but just worried about sharing like what exactly they might be running low on because it's like proprietary or whatever it might be but in in general i mean you you are seeing like i think we there's this seesaw where on one side you have like these supply concerns and on the other basically the stuff we've seen the past few weeks like all these logistical of like last mile things and we're going to like probably bounce back and forth between that in the next few months and right now I think we're getting close to that supply constraint and I I agree Matt I like I'm somebody who's doing a lot of reporting on this and it's still not very clear to me exactly what is going wrong even in in Europe you're getting reports that like they're delivering way fewer vaccines than they expected it's and the companies aren't really providing a clear explanation as to why but um, and the, the Biden administration says it's working on it. But it, I'm kind of just wondering, like, why? Like, what? what is not even like, why is this happening? But like, why weren't they more prepared for this? Like, was it a it's like the, the Biden administration last week said it's ordering enough vaccines for 300 million Americans before the orders only added up for 200 million Americans. It's, <laughs> right, like, it's like
3: they knew how many people are in America. Right. Like that. This was not some sort of
2: mystery a few weeks ago. Like, why weren't people on top of this already? I understand that, like. The federal government ordering stuff works weird, but like still uh, uh, like this just seems like some balls have been dropped somewhere along the lines and nobody's really explaining why. I
3: I want before everybody yells at us, there's like there's like two things that people who work in pharmaceuticals say about this that don't like totally explain it. But I want to acknowledge that I know that they say this. One (laughs) is that vaccines are complex biological products. Hmm. So it's not. I don't I don't know exactly what that means, but I don't know. It's like it's not like a table. And the other is that the process is the product is the thing that they say um, so that because these are biological products, small differences in the production climate can ruin it. Right. You know, like it has to be very sterile. It has to be very pure. Everything has to be done just so. So apparently the manufacturing is very prone to being thrown off. It's like it's finicky. I still don't find this to be like totally satisfactory. Uh, We do three million flu vaccinations per day during flu season. And if you've ever read like a smart health person's article about flu vaccinations, um, they will tell you that not that many people even get them. Um, It's definitely not like a huge national focus. Um, So like it is possible to produce vaccines at a larger scale, even if it's hard. Companies successfully do it all the time. And so, yeah, to Herman's point, like uh, it's confusing. You read like, well, AstraZeneca is not delivering as much as they thought they would to the European Union. And then you keep waiting for the paragraph in the story where they're going to be like, Because this net didn't work. And so a fly got, you know, it's like, it's like, what actually happened? Um, And it's weird. And, you know, reporters don't like to do like what we're doing here. This like, I don't know stuff. It's like you're assigned to write the story about production shortfalls. So you like write everything you know about production shortfalls. And as a reader, you can be frustrated because like the real story is that the company has not explained it and the government has also not explained it. And we would like to know.
1: I mean, I do wonder how much of this is, it seems really hard to talk about the questions of vaccine supply without acknowledging that we still don't have 100% certainty on how many vaccines are going to be approved for mass distribution and by whom and when, that like, that not only is a question going forward, you know, a lot of the more optimistic assumptions about vaccine availability assume that we're going to have stuff coming online now that is not currently available for getting, you know, for, for going into arms in the US. But also retrospectively, as we think about like, all right, in a world where Moderna isn't 100% certain that they're going to get their vaccine approved, to what extent does it even make sense to invest in, you know, all of these second order production and supply chain questions as if you, you know, like all, that may not be replicable to any other vaccine, much less any other product on the assumption that something will happen that you're not sure about. It does seem that the regulatory uncertainty might be a factor here that, you know, it that maybe you can't go and go back in time and change that. And maybe that isn't the lever you want to pull, but it doesn't seem that unreasonable to me that you can't scale up from, maybe we have some vaccines getting approved. Maybe we don't To Okay. They needed to be entirely ready yesterday.
2: I mean, the the one thing I would say to push back on that though, is We knew that Moderna and Pfizer, like, their vaccines were moving along in trials pretty quickly, like, weeks, months in advance. So, like, you could have started, like, making some headway on this. I I don't know. I mean, it, it is true that vaccines are complex. The process is complex. But at the same time, like... We knew this was coming. Like maybe you can like prepare for the worst and maybe you don't have to do the worst. Like this is just basic stuff that like companies do when launching products is like like you plan for things going wrong and then make sure you have things in place to make sure those those things are smoothed out as quickly as possible. And to me it just does not seem like that has been done at any step of the chain. I mean, the Trump administration was like actively resisting doing any of this stuff. I think one of the most ridiculous quotes we've heard in the past year from them, and we heard a lot of stuff, was them like characterizing more support for the states as like a federal quote-unquote invasion. Like this is where that administration was coming from. So in in that sense, it's not surprising that a lot of the stuff just didn't get done. But I I think we're like still suffering the consequences of it. We still don't have a lot of answers, but it, it just doesn't seem like this is going as
3: it should. Also, just, you know, on on production side stuff, one thing that, that has been frustrating me is that a lot of the uh, reporting on the phase three clinical trials made it seem like there was a like huge amount of doubt as to what the outcome of the trials would be. But from what I've heard from people who've worked on vaccine development in the past is not not that the phase three trial is pointless or that you can just skip it, but that it's actually very rare for a vaccine to fail at that stage in the process, that if you are a, a, a gambler. Right. If you have a vaccine and it succeeded in animal trials, it succeeded in lab tests, it passed phase one safety tests, it demonstrated a phase two antibody response. It would be quite surprising for it to flunk the phase three trial. Uh, Not to say it never happens, but that like it's a distinct minority of the cases and they do it because, you know, they don't want to just inject people with vaccine and hope for the best. Uh, They want to have scientific knowledge about it. But you could, with small downside risk, have started acting like the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines were going to be a thing you know, when they started the phase three trial, right, you would have run a maybe 15-20% chance that they would flunk there. Uh, But the expected value there is still pretty good, right? We didn't actually need to like wait around until mid-November and then say, okay, now we're going to start thinking about do we have enough vials, right? Uh, Because like, you you can get all that stuff. You can ask them, like, what's your what's your supply list? You know what? What doesn't spoil vials you can stack in warehouses like there's no reason there should be shortages of that. And it was a very sort of, you know, Pennywise pound foolish kind of approach that was taken to sort of act completely agnostic about this. And very, you know, I mean, it's very Donald Trump that he was so focused in the summer and fall on the vaccine approval Right. Like that was his alternative to doing any hard work about anything on non-pharmaceutical interventions. But it turns out that vaccine approval itself doesn't like magically fix anything. There's just this whole other raft of hard work. And, you know, being monomaniacally focused on vaccination wouldn't have been the worst idea in the world. Like he didn't want to put in time on sort of any Aspect of this. And in a way, he's lucky. Like, he's going to go down to his grave telling himself that had Pfizer put out their press release a week earlier, he would have won and that they really screwed him. But, like, he wasn't doing anything on the vaccine front any more than he was on anything else. And, like, that's what we saw over the course of December and January that, like, work had not been put into addressing any of these issues.
2: I I mean, one of the things that if you've I've read some of the reporting on like how Operation Warpsteed came to be and it was like the most haphazard shit in like (laughs) the federal government. Like it was basically Azar, just the Secretary of Health and Human Services, just kind of like pitching it to the Trump administration to like save his career because he was under trouble for failing on other aspects of COVID. And then it just kind of like fell together and like some of the Vice president's team wasn't happy with it because they felt it was undermining their authority. Like the public side of this was like, this is a wonderful project by the Trump administration. Trump is really involved in it and whatnot. And apparently just internally from based on the reporting, it was nothing like that. And it really just puts like this. I don't know. It just backs up what Matt is saying that like it's. These things were not – like there was really not that much focus despite what they tried to put out to the press on actually getting all of this right.
1: So, I mean – The question that that raises is, and I know that the Biden White House got a little miffed about, you know, the initial reaction to their kind of million doses a day goal, because they felt that the press was simultaneously hitting them for it being too modest and too ambitious, which, yeah, folks, that's what happens when you treat the press as a monolith, people are going to have different reactions to it. But um, they've, they've also we've also been getting mixed messages from them on exactly how much they inherited in terms of an infrastructure that they can use, right? Because on the one hand, there was a message being sent out that like, we got absolutely nothing from the Trump administration, we really have to start from scratch. And on the other hand, the way that Anthony Fauci is talking about this, the way that they're going about like logistically planning does make it seem like they're able to really hit the ground running in a lot of ways that imply that there has been some, you know, that they're not just starting from zero. So what is your estimate of whether the Biden administration is going to be able to start doing what it wants to as quickly as it wants to? I,
2: I mean, I would say that that it's not that they were literally starting from zero, but there certainly wasn't as much work as you would have hoped. Um, I think one thing you, where you can see this is you can just look at Biden's plans. And if you look at the plans, he, almost nothing that he's proposing is like radical or new or anything. I mean, one of his things was like, we're gonna get FEMA to build some vaccination centers starting tomorrow and like not not like literally tomorrow that's just what he said and it's just like yeah why why wasn't that happening already like this seems like an a very obvious thing and you look through the plans and they're they're just ideas like this it's stuff that you would expect the federal government to do it's something that like you might have expected just like President Mitt Romney to do like but but like even that basic stuff wasn't getting done. So it's just to say, like, when that's the stuff that's making it in the proposals after the Biden administration has had time to study what Operation Warp Seed was doing, it I think it lends credibility to the fact that this this really was not handled as as well as, I mean, not not surprisingly, but not as well as it it should have been.
3: You know, one thing that I do think we're gonna start bumping up against is that, you know, Biden really sort of prioritized putting a COVID transition team together. He has like a task force that is co-chairs and he brought back the former surgeon general and and all this kind of stuff. Um, But he has not appointed a uh, FDA commissioner. And in a practical sense, like, the FDA is a very important uh, institution for regulating both food and drugs. And, you know, so all this stuff, right? So, like, um, can we change the vials? Can we change how much stuff we put in the vials? Can we get new factory certified? Like, all this stuff runs through the FDA. Um, The FDA obviously doesn't, like, halt functioning uh, just because it doesn't have a confirmed commissioner. There is an acting commissioner there. But sometimes in a public health emergency, you want the regulatory agency to do something different from what its business as usual approach would be. And that's not going to happen when you have a senior career person in there as acting commissioner. Like, I am often critical of how many political appointees uh, we, we have in American agencies, but like zero is not the correct number either. Right. It's like, you know, the the president of the United States ultimately is accountable to the American people to make a holistic judgment about the relative balance of considerations here. And he needs to have a person who's his agent in these agencies to assess uh, whether it's correct or not, you know. So like, I, I read this story today, and they were like, well, the FDA is expected to make a decision in a few weeks. And I don't know, you know, like, m- maybe it really, really takes them three weeks. Maybe they could do it in two and a half, you know, like, it's, this is the kind of thing where like, you would want the president to read this article in his newspaper, and be like, eh. like, let me call the guy over there, like, see what's up. But you sort of, can't if you don't have that. And it's not because of inattention to the vaccine process or to COVID in general. There seems to be some genuine indecision between the president and his team as to who they should pick there. Right. It's not that they just haven't gotten around to it yet. Um, And I and I wonder, I mean, I think someday we will get the accounting of what that disagreement is about as to, like, do they want to bring back an old hand? Do they want to bring a new person in? Because it's a thing people disagree about a lot, but it's sort of the the dark matter in a lot of this, because to increase production, you need the regulator to sign off on whatever it is you do.
1: Yeah. And I want to be clear about this because, you know, the genre of stories that we got about President Donald Trump and the vaccine were about the Trump White House putting undue political pressure on an apolitical agency to, like, skip through, you know, to cut some scientific corners. And that, you know, may have had an impact on the, you know, the initial responses to the to the news that vaccines were being introduced. It's kind of a, like, how can we be confident that this isn't due to political interference? And, Matt, what you're talking about isn't is not, you know... Donald Trump's FDA commissioner, you know, calling up some some person on the approval desk and saying, I s- skip reading through the rest of the paper and just sign OK and, and hand it to me. Well, you get to my
3: pillow guy.
1: What you're talking about as much as anything is you need someone standing in front of the public to say we as scientists are confident that this is the best course of action if you're going to take extraordinary measures, right? So it's not like, it may very well be the case that folks at the FDA think that they could do all of this in a shorter period of time than they than standard operating procedures would have them doing it. But you, as a civil servant, can't be the fall guy if that goes wrong. You can't be the person about whom there's like the Vanity Fair article saying, you know, they, they cut some corners and this is why this whole thing is a, you know, this is why they approved a failed vaccine. So having the political appointee there to say, I have the, you know, I have confidence in the scientists at my agency. We are confident that this is the course of action. And I am the person who is going to be taking the success or failure for this. This is not the government's problem. This is the administration's problem.
3: Or or, 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 I mean, it could be the opposite that it's like you need a political appointee to be like, I don't know what this executive is talking about. Like he's talking like they tried this overstuffed vials thing in Peru 15 right. years ago and they all broke. Y- you know, like give a give a reason.
1: Right. You need somebody in front of the cameras saying what you are hearing is not the way we can do things. Exactly.
3: Um, because, you know, it's like the civil service. It's not their. It's not their role to like either depart from standard procedure because, you it's an emergency or to like yell at people in in society uh, that what they're saying isn't true. So it's a, it's an odd sort of lacuna out there, you know, as I've seen like uh, deputy assistant treasury secretary is, you know, coming in um, which is great. Like I, I love a good deputy assistant treasury secretary. Uh, but like, obviously the virus is like the issue right now and you need to get people in on all that stuff at the key agencies, we've had some good, I think some like good vibes out of like the CDC is back. Right. And I feel like that's like that's like what the Biden administration is trying to do. And it's very helpful. Like the the COVID tracking project, people say they're going to be able to wind down because the federal government is it's going to do trying. like the basic data collection stuff that you would think uh but like you can't just not have a cdc as trump tried to but like you also can't not have an fda like just because you're in some moment of indecision
2: i mean you you saw this last year too when they were actually approving the vaccines and they were like we'll come back in a few weeks and like look i have no idea what is actually going on in the fda process i can't like say exactly what was going wrong but if the issue was like well we have a lot of data to read through like maybe shift some staffers over like i have to think that when you're dealing with like the worst disease outbreak in a hundred years you can like do a little more to speed up the process and it, it does seem like that hasn't been happening at every step of the way there hasn't been that focus to it
3: do some uh, some some nights and weekends um let's take a break and let's uh let's talk about our white paper
0: support for this podcast comes from planned parenthood your body is your own So
1: this week's white paper is called Housing Precarity in the COVID-19 Pandemic, Impacts of Utility Disconnection and Eviction Moratoria on Infections and Deaths Across U.S. Counties by a set of five authors, mostly from uh, Duke University. And the paper, uses they use a kind of counterfactual model. They first look at differences in county-level eviction moratoria uh, because on the on the assumption that like it's a lot easier to look at where the virus actually was at any given time, if you look at the difference between counties in the same state, same metropolitan area, than if you try to compare where New York was in March to where Montana was in March, and using that data build a model that they then kind of run as a counterfactual, and end up estimating that the the difference between policies that limit evictions, whether that's a moratorium on filing eviction notices or whether that's just, you know, we're going to postpone the hearings until the pandemic is over. Uh, the difference between having those and not creates a reduction in infections of 3.8 percent and an 11 percent reduction in deaths. Which if you treat those as kind of whole numbers nationwide, you, you end up with some big, big numbers. Uh This is the kind of thing that, if it were, if this were the only policy switch that you were flipping, would be a massive difference, and you know, arguably the biggest policy intervention of the COVID pandemic in terms of what we could actually do plausibly in March of 2020. I'm going to leave the housing implications of this to Matt and the public health implications to Herman. I just want to note, honestly, that what's really striking reading this paper is that this is building on a literature that already exists of the effects of COVID-19, a pandemic that started in the United States like 11 months ago in the most conservative accounting. And it's really been, and we've remarked on this before, but it's been fascinating to see how quickly social science research has been able to iterate, social science and public health research have been able to produce, not not real time, but very close to real time on an academic timeline, findings about how this is working And, uh, you know, looking at various policy interventions as they roll out in the field. And I would love to hear in more detail from, you know, some of the academic gatekeepers here on what they think uh, the lessons of this are for once we return to to post-pandemic times. Because, you know, we talk about a lot of issues that never hit the kind of obvious everybody in the U.S. is obsessed with it fever pitch that the pandemic has, but that Arguably, as a but where policies are still moving forward at a particular pace, and so you know, there can be a gap of an entire generation of policies between when you when something goes out into the field and when you actually find out about its results in an academic, you know, in something that's academically validated. So, I would like to know if you know, the operation warp speed that academic. Uh, paper generation appears to have been working on has actually been something that could be replicated or some parts of it could be replicated in a post-pandemic world, or whether this is actually just as shoddy as the Operation Warp Speed on the vaccines, and we just don't know about it yet.
3: Well, so, you know, there's a long roster of scholarship about housing instability and evictions, right? And so, and you can point to sort of evictions as sort of like event study uh, occurrences in the lives of low-income people. And it's always been clear that it's very harmful um, across a a wide number of ranges. Um, So the monetary loss to the landlord of the tenant not paying rent is obviously real. That's like the whole business is that your tenants have to pay you rent. But it's small relative to the harm to the tenant uh, of being kicked out uh, because, you know, it's like your personal property tends to get destroyed if you're evicted from a home, among other kinds of things. So there's always been a kind of policy conversation as to what should you do about that. And, you know, in more progressive jurisdictions, the tendency is to adopt very strong regulations that make it hard to evict people um, even for non-payment of rent you know you have to give them many months so a whole bunch of stuff like that and it tends to produce somewhat perverse long-term policy consequences because it means that people don't want to rent to low-income tenants or to tenants who they you know perceive might be likely to not, pay because it's going to be hard to evict them. And there's like an incredible back and forth in the the literature about the merits, the costs and benefits of, of these kind of regulations. And are there better ways you can do it? And so there's certain kinds of like emergency financial assistance programs where basically, you know, if you lend people money so that they don't get evicted, there's big kind of social gains to that. An interesting thing about the pandemic is that it inspired governments to largely drop all of their kinds of concerns about this kind of thing. Um, Even a Republican administration, you know, they faced some pressure from Congress to act on housing instability, but I would hardly say it was overwhelming pressure. Like they really just kind of did it uh, to show that they were doing something to the point that the Biden administration has actually become concerned about landlords uh, going bankrupt and banks needing to foreclose on the landlords because they are not collecting rent. Uh, So they don't talk about this that much. But like part of the housing assistance in the Biden plan is to bail out landlords because the tenant protections have been too effective. Uh, So You know, as a housing policy measure, there's a clear win to stopping people from getting evicted. And the question is always, well, what is the cost of that in dynamic terms? Right. Because particularly when there isn't a pandemic, we expect people to move to different cities for different reasons and to want to rent apartments there. We expect um, abused partners to want to move out of their house quickly and be able to get a new place to live quickly. Right. And all of that kind of stuff gets harder the sort of more you increase tenant protections, you make it more difficult for new tenants to kind of get in the game. Uh, Since people have been losing jobs, there's not like a ton of hiring. There's not a ton of moving. The government is sort of trying to discourage people from doing most of that stuff. We are in a moment of not caring about the kind of dynamic aspects of the, the housing market. I assume that the more liberal jurisdictions, though, will there'll be some stickiness to these tenant protection measures because they're not, they're not like unheard of ideas or anything. Um, the sort of total suspension, you know, is, but making it challenging to kick people out of rental housing is not a like a brand new idea to the policy conversation. It's just an idea that doesn't, um, it doesn't work as well as giving people the financial resources such that they don't need special eviction protections, I guess is what I would say. But it, if you don't think too hard about it, it seems cheap, right? Because the financial losses to the landlords um, are not that large uh, and the costs are sort of invisible.
2: I think w- one thing I would say on the public health side of this paper that I, I was a bit skeptical of the effects at first because they seemed so large, and in general, that that just makes me skeptical whenever I'm reading. Yeah,
1: I, I, yeah, I I don't know that I can vouch for the methodology. I would, if if someone wants to like email and explain bootstrap modeling, uh, I'm happy to he- hear it. But in general, I think that counterfactual models like this, it just you gotta take it with a grain of salt because there's a lot. But, of- but
2: basically, I, I mean, I think my big question is like I understand the causal chain here is essentially if if you get evicted you get bounced to another house, probably with like a friend, you might be couch surfing, and that might happen multiple times. So you can see like you're exposing yourself to more people time and time again to COVID. I think the thing that makes me a bit skeptical, even knowing that though, is like, it seems to me like the cities and um, just places that did these moratoriums are probably more likely to have taken COVID seriously in general. And I know this that these researchers and some of the other studies that have been done on this have tried to control for this, but I'm Kind of skeptical. You can fully control for all that stuff, and and that, I, I'm wondering if like a bunch of that effect really is like the moratorium is a signifier for other policies that are effective at stopping COVID. Whether that's like lockdowns, social distancing, might might not even be like uh, a policy necessarily, but just if your city is doing a moratorium on evictions, maybe you are more likely to as just the general population is more likely to mask up. Yeah, I guess like that's that's one of the things that I was wondering while reading this. I I don't think the researchers address it, but it's one thing that that makes me skeptical of the numbers overall.
3: Yeah, I mean, the size of the effect they're claiming here is very, very. Very large. I mean, it's also, you know, you want to think about like, well, what's the real, real counterfactual here, right? Because, you know, I think if you ask the people at like uh, American Institute for Economic Research, uh, sort of like libertarian kind of anti-masker, you know, whatever people like they would say, yeah, like we shouldn't have done this eviction moratorium, but like we also shouldn't have closed bars and restricted restaurant attendant. Right. Like like the argument would be that like people wouldn't be in danger of losing their home if we had uh, just like gone the full freedom route. Um, And then, you know, then I think the public health people would say, no, we would have way more deaths in in a scenario like that. Um, But, you know, I mean, what we're talking about here is the public health impact of this measure in addition to a bunch of other measures. Right. Not I think if you had done like no social distancing or mask. Right. If your idea was we're going to fix the pandemic with an eviction moratorium like that doesn't make sense like at all on it on its face. Right. Um, The the policy rationale was like we are deliberately taking steps that are going to hurt people's income and therefore like we need to make sure that they don't lose their their homes and so it's like actually you want to assess to an extent like the holistic package which obviously did not work as well as we had hoped in April but does seem to have worked like better than just don't do anything
2: yeah I mean I, I should say like while I'm skeptical of, like the overall number here obviously eviction moratoriums have Plenty of benefits elsewhere, like regardless of their effects on COVID, like in in this particular situation, like helping people out economically is 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 good.
3: Well, um, I mean, if you had had people crowding into homeless shelters, yes, I don't know, you know, like it, I, I I I'm not sure exactly how you you would know qualitatively, like where right. would people have gone without this? I mean, they try to instrument it because the counties have different policies,
1: but yeah, I mean, I I do know that at least anecdotally the the effect of the moratoria has been so large that like my mother works at an organization that provides some rental assistance to families and they are having trouble, you know, they were, they were for a while having trouble with their grant cycle because they weren't intaking enough families because the families didn't need rental assistance. So like there is a certain extent to which uh, the moratorium may have coincide, may have actually brought some attention, I think on the margin to you know, housing insecurity in pandemic as a problem in ways that are making me think a little more about the relationship between government interventions and private charity in, in ways that might not that might be redundant to each other, because government action implies it's a problem. Um, but it, I do think that the it's going to be worth no w- worth looking at, you know, when do the eviction moratoria expire in various places? Is it consistent with when the virus is fully under control in those places or are we going to have a situation in which places where vaccine penetration is more thorough lift moratoria and that you know just like the subsiding of the second wave last fall led a bunch of places that had never had a second wave to lift restrictions and therefore get the third wave are we would we potentially be looking at a scenario like that in some of the places where they might be itching to lift their fingers off the eviction pause.
2: And two, one thing I should also add is to kind of put skepticism on my skepticism is there is actually other research showing that uh, slowing down evictions helps people like in a bunch of public health ways, like in terms of like reduction of HIV, that does seem to be linked to uh, people not getting evicted. So it's not like this 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 research field is not unheard of where like, Stopping evictions helps in public health and helps stop disease outbreaks. That's that's actually not totally novel. Um, So to that degree, it wouldn't be surprising if this does have an effect. Question is how big of an effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it's fair to say that for something that wasn't ostensibly done as a public health measure, it had a massive public health impact. The question is whether we can say for sure that this was the most important public health intervention that state and local governments could have made. I mean, another thing that I
3: think we're going to need more research on ultimately is, you know, like the poverty rate fell during the the heyday of the CARES Act, which then expired, but then new relief came and we may get even some more. Um, And I don't think we yet have a fully clear picture of how the distribution of income sort of shifted and changed during this period, separate from kind of emergency regulatory relief measures, uh, because there has obviously been a fair amount of economic hardship associated with with the pandemic, but in a weird way. Right. I mean, this is a media dynamic so that it's like, here's a story about people who were thrown out of work by the pandemic and what a difficult time they are having accessing unemployment insurance benefits like that's that's news. Like, you can potentially get that on the front page of the newspaper if you have really good quotes and stuff. Whereas just on a random day, be like, here's some people who are marginally attached to the labor force and work sporadically but can't get many hours and have very poor living conditions. Like, that's not a front page news story, right? Uh, But the CARES Act did an incredible amount to help people in that situation. It was the first time uh, that people in that situation had been able to access cash assistance from the federal government uh, since the, the early 1990s. And Nobody has, I think with good reason, people have like not wanted to write like welfare queen articles about people getting their their pandemic survival checks and their living standards going up and stuff. But like it's clear in the numbers that there's a set of a a, a diminution in the number of people experiencing poverty, uh, even as we had the unemployment rate going up and, like, all kinds of other terrible things sort of happening, right? So that's also going to play into the eviction dynamics and then to further have that kind of security of tenure, right, that, like, your landlord can't kick you out. Like, that's good, right? And I I would hope that we can take some lessons from this about how to create a more kind of humane uh, society because we were obviously able to afford on a social basis like everyone will look back on 2020 and be like, this year sucked. Uh, but it didn't suck because of a lack of aggregate financial resources, right? Like it sucked that like I couldn't see my family, that you can't do things and you know, celebrate Dara's wedding and and stuff like that. Uh, but like we can put back together, um, these elements of the emergency safety net in better times.
2: I mean, it, it should be said, like, I have a friend who actually went through one of these experiences where they they couldn't afford their rent anymore and they ended up moving in with another friend. And that that's actually one of the things that made me think about this paper because, like, now he's he's a, an essential worker, quote-unquote, and I wonder how much that's putting not just himself at risk of COVID, but now this other person he's living with at risk of COVID. So I think... Just, just from that perspective, the it makes sense that this policy would work to some degree, but like Matt and Dara have said, like there's just there was a lot happening last year, and I would just be curious to uh, suss out like how 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 as a researcher it's going to be a big challenge to like to, like take apart all these policies and see isolate them to see what effect they're having, but. Particularly in 2020, it seems sort of especially challenging.
1: I mean, this gets back to what we were talking about last week about the the decline in crime, right? Like when you're dealing with something that massive, yes, ultimately, years and years down the road, somebody might be able to pull together a like composite study of like what effect various things had, but that's not going to be as useful as looking at some of the microdynamics here because it's all so synthetic at that point that like you're dealing with something that has a thousand causes and we should acknowledge that like, we're never going to know exactly what the right path to take could have been.
3: That's a wrap. All right. Um, thanks Herman. Thanks Dara. Uh, thanks as always to our sponsors, to our producer, uh, Eric Janakis and, uh, the weeds will be back on Friday.